All right, well, good morning, everybody. Trust you had a great week. It's definitely a different vantage point being up here looking upon all you guys. Um, but don't, don't view the sitting behind a table or up here on a stage as the uh, idea that I'm going to be lecturing to you all day. I actually am hoping, as I told Wayne when he gave me the opportunity to teach this morning, that we could have a group discussion, kind of bounce some ideas off of one another as we consider what Hokum is covering in this chapter. We're in chapter 10 of Created in God's Image. So if you have your book today, we're going to be on pages 187 and following, covering chapter 10, which is titled The Restraint of Sin. And as we talked about last week when Dan was here, or I guess that was last week, right? Yeah, the last, the last time I was here, which I believe was last week, uh, Dan taught on the doctrine of common grace. So when we talk about this idea of God restraining sin, we're really talking about common grace. That's what this chapter of Anthony Hokum's book is specifically focused on, and that's what we're going to be discussing together this morning. So just by way of introduction to make sure that we're all on the same page regarding terms, uh, can somebody just give me a working definition of grace? What are, we, what are we talking about biblically and theologically when we use the term grace? Throw that around a lot in churches, but I'd love to hear a, a definition provided. That's mercy, but uh, that great definition. Um, grace is, is the other side of that coin. So if mercy is not getting what you deserve in punishment terms, grace would be... I looked up. All right, let's hear the, let's hear the looked up definition. It would be great. In the Greek, the word grace has the meaning of favor, blessing, or kindness. There you go. When we think of saving grace, Amen. That's exactly right. Um, undeserved or unmerited favor. Um, the flip side of what Jacob's definition was, if, if mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Okay, so there's the positive aspect of, of Jacob's definition or Wayne looking at the Greek term. Uh, grace or charis in, in the Greek, that is what uh, is meant by grace. Okay, so we, we, we have an idea of grace now, that this is going to be really uh, at the forefront of what we're going to be talking about for the rest of today. Today's all about the grace of God. And last week, Dan went through different manifestations of God's grace in Scripture, and of course, different manifestations of grace that humanity experiences in this world. Uh, if you have your handout from the previous lesson, you should notice those terms there, the different kind of manifestations of grace that we discussed. Um, first type of grace was salvific or saving grace, okay? Uh, salvific or saving grace. Somebody give me a working definition. I know that uh, Wayne just did that, but just to make sure you're awake this morning, put it to your own words. When you experience God's saving grace, what is it that you have experienced as a sinner? So, yeah, yeah. When you experience salvation, what is God giving to you? Forgiveness, forgiveness right? He's giving you forgiveness of your sins. That's undeserved. And then what does that mean for eternity? What do we get for eternity as a result of that forgiveness? Eternal life with God, right? So we, some theologians would say it like this, that in saving grace, 
you're getting not just forgiveness for your sins, but you're actually getting God himself. You, you get the gift, the undeserved favor, the undeserved blessing of residing with God and his people forever and ever in his kingdom. And that is the ultimate uh, manifestation of God's grace that any person can ever receive. And, you know, as, as, as we know from Scripture, not every sinner is going to receive God's saving grace. So if you're here today and you're a believer, you are who you are exclusively because God, for reasons known only to himself, he lavished you with that undeserved favor, forgiveness of sins, and then someday, whether at the return of Christ or at your earthly death, um, residing with him in his kingdom forever. So uh, Romans eleven six is a good text that really gets to the heart of saving grace. Just again, we're, we're making sure we're on the same page here with terminology. Somebody look up Romans eleven six, please. And read that out loud. Context of this passage, if you'll recall from when Nick has taught this text from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, it's probably a couple months ago now that we were in Romans 11, but Paul is talking about Israel and whether or not they have a future in God's redemptive plans. Of course, the answer to that is yes, they do have a future. God has a special plan for Israel as a people. And right there at the very beginning of the chapter, you have some Old Testament citations that Paul uses and some Old Testament examples that Paul uses to justify why Israel has a future. That's verses 1 to 4. And then verses 5 and 6. Somebody read verse 5 and 6 because 5 kind of gives you a running start into 6. Somebody read that out loud. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no There you go. So uh, verse 5, Paul, Paul's summarizing those Old Testament examples and Old Testament citations by saying, hey guys, I know it looks like Israel by and large has rejected the Messiah, speaking to his first century audience. However, know this, God has graciously chosen a remnant from the nation of Israel in the first century and on until the return of Christ. God has graciously chosen a remnant of Israelites to be saved. And then verse 6 but if it, the it referring to God's gracious choice, but if God's gracious choice, uh, or if God's choice rather is by grace, sorry, my phone went black on me. Pull it back up. But if God's choice is by grace, that choice, again, the it, is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. In other words, if you could work or earn or deserve grace, you're no longer talking about grace. Grace is something you receive as a gift. It's not something that you earn or deserve or work for. So it's crucial that when we talk about the idea of grace, we have that understanding right at the forefront of our minds. Now, the second manifestation of grace that Dan talked about last week and that's talked about in this portion of Hokema's work is the idea of prevenient grace. That might have been a new term for some of you guys last week. Prevenient grace. Can somebody give me a, a working definition of that just by way of review? If you have your handout, it's probably in the handout. I, I see some people with that from last week. Prevenient grace. I think Martina's looking at it. Praise used to describe the grace given by God that precedes the act of a sinner exercising saving faith in Jesus Christ. There it is. 
Beautiful. So the word prevenient, prevenient, just think prior to or before in time. So, so any manifestation of God's grace that leads to salvation at some point in the future, that is what we mean by prevenient grace. Um, another term that is, is a, sim- a synonym to prevenient grace is the term effectual calling. So we, we talk about this idea of God showing grace to a sinner that at the time that he's showing grace, it doesn't result in salvation, but it's leading them towards salvation. We talk about them being called or talk about them being drawn to saving faith. That's the idea of prevenient grace. Um, a, a good text for that, go to John six forty four and have somebody read that passage. John six forty four. Another synonym for provenient grace um, that we could also say is irresistible grace. Okay, we're talking about, and these are all synonyms. But we're talking about the idea of God effectually drawing a sinner to salvation over a period of time. Is it John six forty four. There you go. So it's this idea, whether you're speaking of provenient grace or effectual calling or irresistible grace, again, all synonyms, all referring to the reality of God drawing a sinner to saving faith. Again, they haven't exercised faith yet, but they're being drawn to God over a period of time. How many of you guys know somebody in your life, or maybe this was your own testimony, that it took them years and years and years or months and months and months before they came to faith? But you could see, you could see something was working in their mind as they were considering the gospel. You, see, you ever heard of that or seen that before? That's what's being described in these particular terms. God is progressively drawing them to salvation, and it could take a, a long period of time in some cases. It's all, of course, in accordance with God's perfect timing of bringing about their salvation. And the last manifestation of grace at, under those, um, those headings by way of review, saving grace, Provenient grace, irresistible grace, uh, or effectual calling. The last one that Dan mentioned last week was common grace. Common grace, okay? Can somebody give me a definition of what we're referring to when we speak of common grace? This was what Dan talked about last week. Is an expression of the goodness of God? Is every fear falling short of salvation? Was this uncertain and sin cursed world enjoys at the hand of God? This includes a delay of wrath, the mitigation of our sin natures, natures, events that lead to prosperity, and all gifts that human use and enjoy natural. See Matthew 5, 43 to 48 in discussion. Very good. So, um, Common grace or universal grace, another good term for, for this theological reality. When we speak of God's grace being common, we speak of it not being ordinary or, or just somehow mundane or not very impressive. When we say common, we mean common to all humanity. It's universal in scope. God, by virtue of his very character, is gracious to all of his creatures, regardless of if they come to faith or not. I mean, we used last week as an example Adolf Hitler being, as far as we're concerned, maybe one of the worst people who ever lived, right? Adolf Hitler received God's common grace again and again and again. Anytime he enjoyed a delicious meal, 
Anytime he saw a, a movie or a play that was um, stimulating and enjoyable, anytime he saw a beautiful sunset, he enjoyed uh, the grace of being married. Those are some manifestations of grace from God in a fallen world that even somebody as wicked as Adolf Hitler could enjoy. So it's this idea that God, by virtue of his very character, he's gracious to all of his creatures. He is a kind God. Let's look at Matthew 5, 44 and 45. I know Martina referenced 43 to 48. The real uh, thrust of common grace is in this passage in Matthew 5, 44 to 45. It's kind of the key text that if you ask a lot of pastors and theologians to go to first, they go to this text. Number one, because of its clarity. Number two, because it came from the lips of Christ. So it's always good to agree with Jesus, right, on, <laughs> on a particular subject. Uh, somebody read us. Uh, again, start in 44. The, the real crux of it's in 45, but 44 gives you that running start. Into... It's 44 to 45? Yes, ma'am. Okay, it says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you as a that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the, on, on the just and on the unjust. Very good. So do, do, do you see the common grace in that verse 45? He causes his, his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. In other words, every good and perfect gift that you and I receive in this life, it comes from a good and gracious Father in heaven. Regardless of if that person comes to faith, they still, because they live in God's world, because they've been created in God's image, they receive expressions of his undeserved kindness to them in this life. So that's a, um, I want to say brief overview. I know it was close to 10 minutes in length, but I wanted to make sure before we get more into the biblical doctrine of common grace today, that we're all on the same page as to where we were at last week and where we're going to be going throughout the rest of our time together this morning. Any questions or thoughts or comments on, on that introduction or overview before we get going? Yes, sir. Uh, I'll talk about it last Sunday, but the fact that you more or less kind of brought up the thought of brought it to my mind again that the fact that Yes, sir. No, and that's 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 a perfect example of common grace because, like, a, an unbeliever being married to a believer, like that, that's it's common grace in the sense they get to enjoy the blessing of marriage, but then also they get a unique picture of what it looks like to see a Christian day in and day out on a. Um, on a frequent basis. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes God can use that to save the unbelieving spouse. So, a uh, really good point there. Isn't that a good, uh, discrimination and discrimination? Isn't it? Isn't it? What? what? Oh, so, so God's grace is, in, common grace is indiscriminate? Yes, yeah. that's, that's what, yes, exactly. That's, that's what a good term for describing. Like believers, unbelievers. Exactly. Dating, yes, life. that's right, yeah. Indiscriminately to all humanity, God shows common grace. It's a good way of putting it. All right. Well, let's look now. Um, 
I want to just uh, go to Hokuma really quickly. I want to read a couple of paragraphs. This is going to summarize um, how we got to even discussing the doctrine of common grace. I know we've covered a lot of ground over the past several months. So I want to give you Hokuma's synopsis. And then we're going to look at some biblical passages that show God's common grace uh, in the Old and the New Testament. Okay? So let me read. If you've got your book, this is page 187 and 188, Creating God's Image, Anthony Hokuma, Restraint of Sin. So he, he summarizes where we've been in this way. We have already discussed the devastating effects of the fall on man's behavior. First, we saw that the fall perverted the image of God in which man was created, with the result that the human person now functions sinfully in his relation to God, to others, and to nature. I further described, Hokuma writes, the universality of sin. And I went on to show that the condition of human beings after the fall, apart from God's redemptive grace, is one of pervasive or all-encompassing depravity and spiritual inability. If these descriptions are true, it would seem that life on earth today ought to be virtually impossible. Because of the fall, every human being is basically self-centered and unloving, hating God, hating others, and exploiting nature. If this is so, it would appear that we have today nothing better than a hell on earth. So Hokum is saying in that excerpt, he's saying... Because of the, the drastic effects of sin in the heart of man, because of man's absolute wickedness as a sinner, this world should be literally hell on earth. That's his terminology. He, he's saying man is so wicked by virtue of rebellion against his creator that if left to himself, he would render this world uninhabitable. He would destroy all relationships, whether it be through um, murder or treachery. They would pollute the earth. It would literally be an unlivable world because of the fall. And then Hokuma notes that, okay, wait a second. If, if we hold to this radical view of man's depravity, if we hold to this, this deep understanding of the effects of sin in this world, listen to what he concludes. So he, he, he writes that, and then he says, that brings up a problem, page 188. He says, we have a problem if we really regard man as this wicked, if we really believe that this world would be so uninhabitable because of the fall. And here's the problem, he says. Here's why it's a problem. He says, as we live on this earth, we do not seem to experience consistently the kind of human badness and depravity sketched above. Many of us do have good neighbors, we find that most of the time we can trust people with whom we have business dealings. Often we run into people, and they are not always Christians, who seem to be kind, helpful, and unselfish. How can we account for this? It's a big problem. If we're going to believe that man is absolutely corrupt and that this world would be absolutely uninhabitable as a result of the fall, how on earth does our experience seem to give us the exact opposite conclusion? Some of the best people you'll meet in this life are unbelievers. We all know people in our life who are not Christians. I'd imagine I say all. Some of you kids might not. Uh, but most of us adults, if you've been in the workplace, if you've looked at your family, if you look at your friends, there's somebody in your life right now who's not a Christian and they live better than people who claim to be Christians. You know that. You see that. So Ogma is saying, how do we resolve this conundrum? And he notes this. Um, he notes that the way in which we deal with this conundrum is the doctrine of common grace. We're going to now look, first off, at 
additional biblical passages that Hokema uses to deal with the doctrine of common grace, one of which is found in the Old Testament, some of which are also found in the New Testament. And then we're going to look at the specific way in which common grace brings about the restraint of sin. So first, we're going to further substantiate why common grace is biblical. And then we're going to look at some of the mechanics or some of the ways in which God is actively exercising common grace in this world to prevent the world from being what Hokum is describing here. In other words... Why does the world look like man's not that bad? It's not because man's really not that bad, Hokum is going to argue, and that he's going to draw these conclusions from Scripture. He's saying the world's not that bad because humanity's not that bad. He's saying, oh no, humanity really is that bad. The world is what it is because God's gracious, because he's good, because he restrains sin. He prevents sinful man from carrying out the full extent of his depravity. So that's where we're heading now um, as we look at some examples here from Scripture for common grace. Uh, page 194, the biblical basis for common grace. First text that Hokema uses is in the book of Genesis. Genesis 20, verses 1 to 7. Familiar text from the life of Abraham. You guys, go ahead and pull up. Genesis 20, verses 1 to 7. And if I can get a volunteer to read that passage, that would be wonderful because we're going to discuss it after reading. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah's wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of sent and took Sarah, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you stay? Will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. The iniquity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the iniquity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sin against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Uh, yeah, verse 7, please. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and he shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Very good. So, um, and then the rest of the narrative goes, Abimelech confronts Abraham. It was like, hey, bro, why did you tell me that she was your sister? Uh, Abimelech. Abimelech. Yes, yes, ma'am. So, yeah, kind of a kind of a unique name. My wife and I were reading through Second Kings, uh, read through First Kings. We're going through Second Kings, and um, her and I both just choke over all the names of places and people. Just that ancient Near East culture. They had a, a really unique way of naming places and people and and those sorts of things. But um, the way the narrative goes here is you have this encounter, right? Um, the previous chapter, Abraham and uh, his wife Sarah. They go into a foreign land. 
He tells his wife, hey, you need to be my, you need to be portrayed here as my sister, uh, which was kind of a half-truth. If you go back and look at his uh, family ties to Sarah, um, she was um, she was related to him. Uh, it wasn't like a direct like sister in, in the sense how we would see uh, a brother and sister under the same roof, but they were connected through a mutual family tie. So he, he kind of says, hey, you need to be portrayed here as my relative because if they find that you're my wife, they're going to kill me. And... Um, so they go and, and, and everything's going fine. Um, Abraham's treated really, really well because the king Abimelech finds his wife attractive and, and um, you know, wants to have a relationship with her. And then um, God shows up to Abimelech in a dream and is like, hey, you know, like your nation and you are going to suffer greatly because of what you've done. Because Abraham is God's chosen one to ultimately bring forth the line that would produce um, uh, Isaac and Jacob and then the 12 tribes um, of Israel represented through his sons, right? So, so Abraham's a big deal to God, and Abraham is warning Abimelech, if you carry out what you're intending to carry out with this man's wife, you're going to suffer greatly and your nation is going to suffer greatly. So Abimelech goes after what we just read to Abraham, and he says, hey, why on earth did you tell me that this was your sister? Do you not understand what you've done to me and to my nation? And long story short, of course, uh, Abraham comes clean. There's a restoration, and, and, um, and then the narrative moves on from there. But that's, that's what's going on in this portion of Genesis 20. My question, though, as we just considered the seven verses at the beginning of chapter 20, is this. Um, how did this encounter with Abimelech demonstrate, this, this encounter between God and Abimelech in a dream, how did that encounter demonstrate God showing grace to him? How was it common grace in that narrative? Why does Hokema cite that as a biblical basis for common grace? Yeah. And let me, well, let me ask you this. Was Abimelech a believer? He was not a believer. This is a, this is a pagan king in the ancient Near East. And God had no obligation to warn Abimelech of the sin that he was about to commit. And of course, we know that if God wasn't gracious, he, he could have let Abimelech take Sarah as uh, one of the, he probably had multitudes of women in that context, in that pagan setting. He could have taken Sarah, added her to the lot of all the other women that he had as wives and concubines, and it could have totally messed up all of God's promises for Abraham, that, that a descendant was going to come through him, and that that descendant would be Isaac, and then through Isaac would come Jacob, and through Jacob would come the sons that would, be, that would bring about the 12 tribes of Israel. And through those 12 tribes of Israel, throughout the course of Old Testament history, that would ultimately bring forth our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, he's gracious in that he, 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 he shows a pagan king the error of his ways, he prevents that pagan king from carrying out the full extent of his heart, which was to commit adultery with, with this married woman. And on top of all that, God's gracious to the scope of humanity because he doesn't allow for his promise to Abraham to be nullified. He is going to keep his promise to Abraham for your sake and for my sake because ultimately our salvation was dependent upon Christ coming from the seed of Abraham. Right? His offspring that would ultimately bring about the Messiah. So we see common grace to Abimelech. We even see common grace to humanity in this encounter. And that's what I want you to see. It's a beautiful picture 
of God's common grace. Um, so we see Genesis 20, verses 1 to 7 with Abimelech, common grace in the Old Testament. We saw Matthew 5, 44, 45, common grace in the New Testament. Um, let's look at common grace in government. Common grace in government. I need a volunteer to read Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, and then another volunteer to read 2 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. So when someone's at Romans 13, 3 and 4, take that away for us. For the rules are not a terror to the good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Mm. Uh, Next verse. For he is, for he is God, or he is, yeah, he is God's servant for you. You're good, but if you do not, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Very good. Okay, and then somebody read the Second Peter text as well. Um, excuse me, First Peter two. I said Second Peter two. First Peter two thirteen to fourteen. Apologize for that. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Very good. Thank you so much for reading, uh, both of you. So two texts talking about the function of government, human government, right? And in and, and, and the Romans context and in the First um, Peter context, the, the dating of this would have been Romans was right before Nero coming on. Well, actually, no, he had just come on to power if you take a, a late 50s date of the authorship of Romans. So potentially both uh, the book of Romans and the first Peter text is dealing with a Roman emperor who really began spearheading the persecution of Christians. Christians were already viewed as outcasts in the first century Roman Empire at this point. They were a little bit different. They didn't worship the pantheon of Roman gods. Um, they, they were considered to be cannibals because there was there was uh, rumors circulating that they were eating some guy's flesh and drinking of his blood at their closed-door meetings, which um, they, they, they took the literal sense of what Christ had taught about the Lord's Supper. Um, there was... Uh, There was rumors going around in this context that the Christians were atheists because they didn't worship all the different gods of the Roman religion. They only worshiped one god, so that that was a a false rumor. It was the belief that Christians were atheists when really they just believed in one god and worshiped one god. And uh, there was also speculation that there was incest going on amongst the Christians because they would refer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, a a misrepresentation of what Christians were uh, believing and practicing in that first century context. And as a result, the society had began thinking, man, those Christians are a little bit out there. 
we, we don't really want a whole lot to do with them. And in Roman religion, it's all about appeasing the gods. So when bad things begin happening to Rome, typically they, their first thought is, how are we not appeasing or satisfying the gods that we worship? Well, get this, beginning of the 60s, which is when First uh, Peter's written, and a few years after Romans is written, a, a huge fire breaks out throughout the Roman Empire. Okay, Huge fire breaks out. Some historians believe that the Roman emperor set the fire and used it as a means to try to rebuild Rome bigger and better. Um, others believe that, um, that there were some just random citizens there in town that uh, had an accident and the fire came about through that accident. But regardless of uh, how the fire got started, the end result was this. The Christians got blamed. The Christians got blamed for burning down most of the Roman Empire, and it was all um, a a progressive, um, I'll say it like this, it was a progression, if you will, of the Christians initially being kind of regarded as outcasts and a little bit strange, and now over the span of about five to seven years, they're regarded as enemies. So from the time Romans is written, mid to late 50s, to the time that First Peter's written, early 60s, you have Christians going from outcast to enemies in society, and you have the emperor, the head honcho over all of Rome, saying that the Christians are the threat to our empire's flourishing. We got to persecute them. We got to get rid of them. And notice what Paul and Peter write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in those texts. They are arguing that even a wicked governor or a wicked emperor, Nero, in the context that we're talking about here, they are God's servant. They are God's servant. And why are they God's servant? How are they God's servant? They are God's servant in that they uphold justice and righteousness in a society. Now, obviously, those are wicked rulers. There's a lot of times where they committed injustice, right? But there were also times, even amongst those wicked rulers, Paul and Peter both are noting this, they are functioning as God's servant to enforce law in a particular civil context. So my question to you is this, in light of those historical observations and textual observations, how is that common grace? Civil government, whether it be in the first century here or whether we're talking about even our day here in 21st century America, how can civil government be an instrument of God's common grace, even when wicked people are serving in government? What do you all think? Everything is done for God's good. Yeah, God accomplishes good out of it, right? Absolutely. What else comes about through the deterrent of sin. That's right. And then, then grace can be given to the believer. That's right. Sin has been deterred by, that's, that's key. by the rulers. Yeah, because even though Christians were being specifically persecuted by Nero, they still had standards of, of law and standards of righteousness that they would impose upon their own citizens for other matters. In other words, Christians weren't the only ones being punished. Their punishment was unjust, we would say. But there were criminals all throughout the Roman Empire that would have to face penalties for their wrongdoings in accordance with Roman law. So in today, 21st century America, um, there are many instances in our nation right this minute 
that are that are unjust, that are, that are not righteous manifestations of the government's ability to to preside legally over the affairs in our country. But think about as as Wayne pointed out, think about how much good is also accomplished. If we didn't have law enforcement, there would be absolute anarchy everywhere. You all, this, the, the protests and the rioting that we see, that's just a small sampling of what would be every single day if we didn't have human government. Even government that's being ran more often than not by people who will never be saved. But God is gracious to all of humanity through government institutions to deter sin and to restrain that sin from ultimately reaching its fullest consummation which would be, as Hokum had argued previously, a world that's completely uninhabitable. We wouldn't be able to live in this world. It would be, it would be in self-destruct mode if God didn't have these restraints in place, particularly in the realm of government. So praise God for government. We should be praying for government. That's why Paul, 1 Timothy 2, he says, you need to be praying for your rulers and all those in authority because God is going to use those to restrain Sin and to bring about good, even amongst wicked rulers residing therein. Last thing we're going to look at today. So we've looked at um, all the different kinds of manifestations of grace in Scripture, right? Saving grace, prevenient grace, otherwise known as irresistible grace or effectual calling, uh, common grace. We've seen some texts from the Old Testament, well, one text from the Old Testament, Genesis 20, one text in the New Testament, Matthew 5, to show the biblical basis for common grace at the individual level. We've seen the biblical basis for common grace at, the, at more of a corporate or national level through human civil governments, right? The, the Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 text. The last thing I want to talk about is, is really an, another perspective on the personal dimension of common grace. It's a very important dimension to it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 2, verses 14 to 16. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. One of the most important texts in all of Scripture for establishing why all of mankind is held accountable before God, even if they've never had the written Bible. Hopefully that got your attention. All of humanity accountable before God, even if they've never even read a Bible before. Romans two fourteen to 16. Somebody read that and we'll talk about that text. Good. So, on the day of judgment, Paul's right, he's arguing this. On the day of judgment, when every human being must stand before Christ and give an account for their life, they are going to have to answer to the extent by which they carried out adherence to the law that Paul says is written on their conscience, on their hearts, as it were. So what do you think Paul's saying when he speaks of this idea of God's law being written on the conscience and how man is 
held accountable before God to be in adherence to that law. What are, what are we speaking of? What do you think law is referring to there? What's something that if, you, if, you've, um, if you've ever seen uh, street evangelism being done or if you've ever heard um, the gospel being preached, the preacher or the evangelist will say, everybody has lied, everybody has stolen, everybody um, has looked at a member of the opposite sex with lust in their heart. What, what am I quoting from there? What, what are those from, those regulations? I'm trying not to use the word to give it away. Lying, theft, adultery, Ten Commandments. That's what I'm looking for. So when Paul uses the term law in his writings throughout the New Testament, more often than not, he's referring to the moral dimension of the law, the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments have been transcribed on the conscience of every person who has been created in the image of God, which that means everybody, right? All human beings have been created in the image of God. So all human beings, because of they've been created in the image of God, they have a sense within themselves that it's wrong to steal, to lie, to commit adultery, to murder, and so on and so forth. In fact, uh, University of Oxford did a study in 2020 found seven universal principles in every human society that has been evaluated to this day. And the second table of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 6 through 10, every single one of those societies recognize that it's wrong to break those regulations. I can give you the study. It's fascinating. University of Oxford ran by secular anthropologists who don't believe in God, don't believe in the biblical or don't believe in the truth of the Bible. They know, hey, all of humanity thinks these things are wrong. They would say that's just a evolutionary phenomena, right? It, it just must mean that if you believe these things are wrong, your society is going to flourish. And, and that's something that humanity has gotten smart about as they've evolved over time, thousands and thousands of years, and even going back to uh, primordial human before they reached their current condition. We as Christians, though, we look at Romans 2, 14 to 16, we say, oh, it makes perfect sense why every society would think those things are wrong. Because every person has been created in the image of God. So my question, how, how does every person having an idea of the Ten Commandments, the moral law, how does every person having that law written on their conscience, how does that testify to God restraining sin? How does that testify to common grace? Think about it. If every society that's ever been evaluated to date has a working knowledge of right and wrong as revealed in the Ten Commandments, how does that show God being gracious everywhere? Absolutely. He gave us he gave us guidelines to meet, not because he's a tyrant, not because he's domineering or overbearing, though he has every right to tell us how to live. He's God. But he gave us those regulations because he knows that human flourishing is directly tied to adhering to those regulations, to those commandments. In other words, if we want a society and if we want our lives to flourish, to be um, enjoyable, to be fulfilling, to be satisfying. If we want all of those things in our lives and in a society, those regulations that have been written on the heart of all human beings, those will get us there. 
That is the, that is the goal. That is the marker. We're never going to reach that perfectly because of sin, but God in his grace and in his mercy, he's given us objective moral guidelines that if kept and if we're accountable to striving to model those in our lives, we will see human flourishing. We will see a deterrent or a restraint of sinfulness in our lives and in um, the civilizations and societies in which we live. So that's, that's God's common grace being manifested, even at the level of conscience, that regardless of if a person ever reads a Bible, God can still restrain sin in their society through that inner conscience that restrains and deters sin from reaching its ultimate complete manifestation. Any questions or comments? We've got about um, five to seven minutes here before we're dismissed. So I wanted to open up the floor to questions uh, or, or um, comments or, or any feedback that y'all might have. If you don't have any questions or comments, I, I was going to read. Um, there's three points that Hokema provides at the close of the chapter where he argues um, for the, the value or the benefit of believing common grace. I mean, obviously, if it's biblical, we should believe it as Christians. We're, we're obligated to believe it as Christians if it's revealed as truth in God's word. But Hokema, he, he really gets to the meat and potatoes at the practical level as to why this doctrine is valuable. So um, first off, are there any questions or comments or feedback from any of y'all that y'all want to share before I just give y'all um, kind of three quick points from Hokema to think about before we close? All right. Well, let me read... Uh, a few excerpts here, uh, not, nothing too lengthy. Probably take us right to when I'll close in prayer and we'll be dismissed for corporate worship. Um, why, why is common grace valuable to believe, apart from it just being biblical? I mean, that's, again, it's biblical. You've you got to believe it. You've got to submit to it. But practically, where does the benefits lie in believing in common grace? Here's what Hokema notes. He says, the doctrine of common grace underscores the destructive power of sin. When properly understood, it is not a denial of either the antithesis between a Christian and a non-Christian worldview or the pervasive depravity of fallen man. This doctrine does not intend to create a kind of neutral territory where art and science may be pursued without concern for Christian distinctiveness. On the contrary... The affirmation of common grace affirms the biblical doctrine of the depravity of man. So number one, believe this doctrine because it points you back to our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. Points us back to our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. In other words, it points you to Christ. That's, that's value number one for Hokema. Common grace points you to Jesus Christ. Second, the doctrine of common grace recognizes the gifts we see in unregenerate or unsaved human beings as a gift from God. This doctrine reminds us that we can appreciate the truths uttered by unregenerate men even while recognizing that they do not know the truth as it is in Christ. We may learn much from great works of literature written by unbelievers, even those who do not share our ultimate commitments. We may appreciate what has been produced by non-Christians in art, architecture, painting, music, science, and other disciplines because their gifts are from God. 
We may therefore enjoy the cultural products of non-Christians in such a way as to glorify God through them, even though such praise of God was not a part of the conscience intent of these artists. So number two, um, whenever you watch a movie, whenever you hear an incredible song, um, for example, I was just up at a doctoral seminar uh, a few weeks ago at Southern Seminary, and my apologetics professor, he loves Van Halen. He, he loves classical rock music. And, and he talks about how like, you can respect the artistic beauty conveyed in their music because of common grace, how, how the chords harmonize with one another, how the song, how the song has, has all these different components that produces a, a beautiful masterpiece. You can, you can see that manifested in people that, that don't know God, they, they don't love God, they're unbelievers, but you can see their giftedness manifested in how God's wired them, whether it be sports, cooking, um, science, doctors, Wayne mentioned open heart surgery. Many of the best open heart surgeons in the world today will never be saved. But yet God has gifted them so profoundly in their discipline to benefit hundreds or even thousands of people they operate on in their career. So that's common grace being manifested um, at this second level. We see common grace uh, recognizing the gifts we see in unsaved humans. And then lastly, third, uh, and then we'll close Hokema notes that the doctrine of common grace helps us to account for the possibility of civilization and culture on this earth despite man's fallen condition. As was said earlier, if God did not restrain sin in the unregenerate world, this earth would be like hell. But because of common grace, Hokema concludes, and because of the restraint of sin that this grace has brought about, civilization and culture has been possible. In fact... The civilizations of the past and present, despite the imperfections that have adhered to them, have made significant and abiding contributions to human culture. As bad as the world gets, and hear this at a very personal level, I don't care who's serving in office, not saying we shouldn't vote, not saying we shouldn't have a say in who serves in office. But what I am saying is whoever serves in office at the local, state, or national level, no matter what the scientists say about global warming, no matter what pandemic breaks loose in this world next after the COVID-19 fiasco we've been experiencing for the last couple of years, regardless of anything that happens in this world that is wicked or evil, and trust me, there's many things, regardless of those things, however, God is so gracious that he will not allow us to carry out the full extent of our wickedness and he will not allow sin to ultimately destroy this earth before Christ comes to judge the living and the dead and to establish the new heavens and the new earth. Why can we trust that this world will not fall apart? Because the God who is perfect in knowledge and wisdom and power, that God, by his grace, is sustaining this world, perfectly accomplishing his purposes at every moment therein, and he will preserve our um, our world and our lives exactly as he desires to until the last day. So at a practical level, that's something you can take comfort in. And that's another benefit that derives from the doctrine of common grace. Yes, sir. I just had a thought. Just let me know if I'm thinking correctly. Just, just because of common grace, uh, say an unbeliever, us being believers, through the Great Commission, mm-hmm. that there is a 
there's a chance for us to reach unbelievers. And through common grace, there is a, there is that chance. Is that, Amen. No, the fact that God... Otherwise, we'd stay in our own little world because mm-hmm. otherwise, there, there's no way to reach anybody. Because to, to that point... Um, the fact that God doesn't strike us down the minute we first sin against Him is common grace. The fact that He's willing to endure for decades, uh, people who live 70, 80, 90, 100 years, and they never bow the knee to Him. They, they blaspheme His name. They live however they want to live. They might cause great evil and destruction in the lives of others or globally in this world in the case of guys like Adolf Hitler. The fact God allows them to live all those years before they face His final judgment for their sins, that's common grace. And to your point, we could never advance the gospel without common grace because this world would not allow for us to. Couldn't do it. So that's, I know it's a lot. We, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, hopefully some of that was helpful. Hopefully some of it will stick. Um, it was my pleasure to be able to teach this morning. Um, we have a few minutes before service begins. I'll, I'll pray briefly and we'll be dismissed. Hope you'll have a great rest of your Lord's Day. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy and love, all of the wonderful attributes that we celebrate as Christians that we know personally as a result of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we bless you for your common grace that you restrain sin through the conscience, through government, and God, that you give good and gracious gifts to all humanity, regardless of if a person comes to faith in Christ or not, because you're so kind. You're so kind to wicked sinners such as us. And I pray that as we go into corporate worship this morning, that these realities that we've discussed in Sunday school would propel us to worship you, that it would motivate us to put you at the front and center of our lives, to serve you wherever you call us, to be faithful with the gifts you've entrusted us with, to use them as a platform and as a means of putting you on display and, and pointing others to you into the gospel of Christ. Help us, Lord to be your good and faithful servants, your ambassadors, as we leave this place today, having been transformed by the renewing of our mind as we've considered the truths that are contained in sacred scripture. Pray for your blessing on every person here today. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep us safe as we go back into our workplace environments and in our home environments this week to do what you've called us to do. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.